0: Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped a turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Hello, everyone. Today we are joined by Dr. David J. Kent. David J. Kent is an award-winning scientist, a respected Abraham Lincoln historian, and a successful multi-book author. His newest book, Lincoln, the Fire of Genius, which we will discuss in this episode, was released on September 1st of 2022. He has 35 years of experience in scientific research, consulting, writing, and a lifetime of Lincoln studies. He's also currently the president of the Lincoln Group of DC, the treasurer and member of the executive committee and board of directors of the Abraham Lincoln Institute, and is a member of the Lincoln Forum Board of Advisors. He has previously served as president of three different scientific organizations. Today, David J. Kent sits down with us to discuss his new book and to talk about Lincoln, his life, his love of science, and the scientific advancements he made during his time as president. I hope you enjoy this discussion. Today, we are joined by author David J. Kent. How are you today, sir?
1: I am good. How are you?
0: I am great. Looking forward to this discussion. So today, we will be discussing your upcoming book, uh, Lincoln, The Fire of Genius, which takes a look at his scientific prowess, uh, his patent uh, He's the only president with the patent. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, so we'll be taking a look at that. Uh, but before we dive into all that, because I'm excited to talk about your book, uh, I want to know a bit about you, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. So tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, how long have you been writing and studying Lincoln?
1: Uh, well, I've been studying Lincoln probably my, my whole life, but uh, it's more complicated than that. <laughs> um, as you might guess, you know because I'm writing about science and Lincoln's interest in science and technology is that I have a science background as well. And uh, part of that is because I grew up in a, a small town in uh, Massachusetts that built itself as the birthplace of American independence. And there's a long story behind that. And obviously there was a lot of, a lot of history in, in, in the town. And i uh, mostly about the Revolutionary War. So I kind of stood out because I, I was interested in Lincoln and the Civil War and everybody else in town was less interested in, in the uh, Revolutionary War because that was more uh, relevant to, to Massachusetts. Uh, but at the same time, it's a coastal town and had great beaches and uh, square miles of marshes, salt marshes and forest. And at the time when I was growing up, Jacques Cousteau was was big on television. He's a big oceanographer and doing all these programs. So I, I kind of gravitated to both science and history and ended up as a career, paying career in science. So I actually worked as a marine biologist for a while until somebody burned down my laboratory (laughs) and and then and then I worked I worked in consulting and and regulatory science and got my degrees my college degrees and advanced degrees were all in science but at the same time I was always studying Lincoln behind the scenes and collecting books and you can see part of my book collection
0: it's impressive
1: (laughs) uh, those are all Lincoln books uh, and now I have about sixteen hundred Lincoln books, so that's only about a third of what I have. Wow! Uh, and I've read not all of them, obviously, but I've <laughs> read a good number of them. And then, uh, so I was in sciences, and I, I spent some time in in Europe uh, doing regulatory science. And then uh, I came back after three years there. I came back and decided, you know, I'm getting tired of doing science and working as a consultant. I really wanna pursue more of the Abraham Lincoln Civil War side. So I actually quit my job uh, in in the consulting and I signed up with the Lincoln Group of the District of Columbia, which is an organization here in the Washington DC area that uh, that studies Lincoln and uh, invites guest speakers to talk about Lincoln. And so that was about 10 years ago. I started with the linking Group. And soon after that, I, I quit the job and I focused on writing. So before that, all of my writing had been scientific papers and scientific reports. And, you know, it was getting kind of boring, to be honest. And, <laughs> and, and you know, and I wanted to reach out. So I went uh, 10 years ago, actually, I went and pitched uh, an early concept for this book, at a writing conference, and didn't didn't actually get a contract to write this this book until much later, but did end up writing books on Nikola Tesla, uh, on Thomas Edison, and then a book on, on on Abraham Lincoln. All very general biographies with a lot of pictures. You know that really was uh, good for. Uh, it was good for everybody, but because of all of the pictures, all the graphics, it appealed more than I expected to younger uh, generations who are much more graphic centric than than uh, older generations. So th- those all did very well. But all while I was thinking about this book. Uh, so and, and I'll get back, I'll get to that in a little bit. But in any case, I, I quit. I was now writing full time. I was Become part of the board of the Lincoln Group of DC. And I'm now the president of the Lincoln Group of DC. I'm also on the executive committee of the Abraham Lincoln Institute and on the advisory board for the Lincoln Forum and involved in some other Lincoln groups. So I'm, I'm, you know, I got, I pretty much put the science behind me and got totally into into Lincoln and, and the Civil War time period. And then of course, like the the picture behind you with the cannons you know i i live in northern virginia uh maybe a five-minute walk from one of the smaller battlefields uh the ox hill battlefield Mm -hmm. and i'm not very far from manassas and there are a lot of civil war battlefields around here so it's hard to to, to ignore the civil
0: war when you live I, in this area. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. So, so you have a bit of a different perspective on history because you're not coming at history from that. I've been studying history my whole life. You kind of have a fresh perspective.
1: Yeah, I think that that makes a difference. Um, you know, all of us have biases and, you know, from our upbringing and what we study in school. And, and obviously I have a science bias because of that. But I've also been because I grew up in a in an area that was so steeped in, in history, and now I've lived for the last 30 years in a in a, a place that is steeped in history. Um, and I've always been interested in history. So I kind of carry, kind of carry the both. And I, I think that's what gave me a perspective that allowed me to see this thread of science and technology through Lincoln's life that others maybe didn't. Didn't mm-hmm. see. Yeah, yeah. They maybe knew he had a patent, but other than that, maybe not so much. Right, didn't think about it too much. So,
0: and what about Lincoln draws you specifically to him, and and is it the Civil War as a whole that fascinates you? It sounds like it was, uh, or is it Lincoln specifically? <clears throat>
1: I'm more of a Lincoln person than a Civil War person. Okay. Um, um, obviously, you can't talk about Lincoln without talking about the Civil War. Okay. But I, I do, uh, I am interested in Lincoln's whole life uh, and his upbringing um, in a way, you know, it was strange. Uh, I'm not sure how I got into Lincoln um, because as I said, my time was very much a revolutionary war era focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was kind of always an oddball in school and, you know, I had to do something different. <laughs> um, but I think with Lincoln, you know, Lincoln was somebody who, he had integrity, um, he had honesty, and he had a general desire to not only better his condition, but better everyone's condition. To give everybody, uh, as he says later, you know, give everybody an equal chance in the race of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he grew up very poor on the frontier and as a farmer and, you know, a lot of self-taught. Uh, I grew up in a very blue-collar uh, family, and you know went to college, but you know went to college on on loans and and grants, and and uh, you know really felt like I had to work to just to keep keep ahead, you know keep keep mm-hmm. ahead of people who had more advantages. So I, I guess maybe that was some of the reason why I I felt a kinship with with uh, Lincoln. Um, obviously, not because he was born in Kentucky and lived in Indiana and Illinois, because I grew up in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a northerner. Uh, but uh, I, he, did, he did interest me early on. And, uh, and, and so he was the main reason why I got into uh, this time period of study. And, and then by extension, of course, the, the Civil War time period, but also all the, everything that led up to that in, mm-hmm. in Lincoln's time.
0: Yeah, they're definitely inseparable, right? You can't have Lincoln without the Civil War. Um, so your upcoming book, uh, let's talk a bit about that, uh, Lincoln, the Fire of Genius. So, so what is this book about for the listeners and what can they expect when they pick up a copy?
1: Well, it's basically a book. Uh, it does go through Lincoln's life uh starting as uh, you know a young farm farm boy on the frontier uh with uh, uh, basically a subsistence farm uh without much money uh with just basically getting by and then works through his life uh obviously becomes became a shopkeeper and then he's a lawyer and he's a and he's a politician and eventually a president during the Civil War, so I, I looked at that time period, and as I looked closer and closer, I started seeing more science and technology threaded through that life. So I wanted to carry that thread through his entire life, starting at the beginning and then getting up to, you know, basically, I, I guess I guess you could say there's three parts. Uh, There's five sections of the book, each with several chapters, but there's really three parts in the sense that, you know, I look at Lincoln, how he gained some of this knowledge and where did this this idea of him being interested in science and technology came from. And then uh, the middle period is when he's uh, working as a lawyer and as a politician. So how did he apply that? You know, how did, how did that come out in what he was doing on a, on a daily basis in his jobs? And then finally, uh, obviously, the Civil War. In the last uh, four chapters are focused entirely on the Civil War and looking at things like the technology of, of war, uh, the science of war. Um, I even look at the assassination and look at aspects of the medical parts of, of that. Um, but also the institutionalizing, institutionalizing of science and technology that kind of sets the stage for the subtitle of the book where you know, his commitment to science and technology helped modernize America you know, really put us on a path that expanded the federal government. I mean, that was one thing, but brought science into the government, brought science into what we were doing. Um, and, and I, that's what I carry throughout it. So it, it's kind of like, how, what did he learn? How did they apply it? And then how did that help both win the war and set us on the stage for the future?
0: Yeah, so this massive impact that he has through his commitment to science, and, and where does this commitment to science come from? Obviously, many of us are familiar with Lincoln's story. He comes from, as you mentioned, uh, a hard background, hard scrabble uh, kind of life, uh, father wants him to follow in the footsteps, but he's an intellectual. So, so where does this love for science come, and how does he cultivate it as a young man?
1: That was that's part of the interesting thing about Lincoln is that he did. He grew up on subsistence farms. His father was had no further um, ambition than to be able to, you know, run a farm and raise a raise his family and, and provide for his family, and that was it. And that's what, that was very common on the frontier. That's why you were out on the frontier. You know, you were, you were, building, um, you were building a life out of, out of the woods. And, um, and so Lincoln didn't have much advantage from, from that respect. And, and his father, he, you know, he wrote that his father uh, was pretty much illiterate and could bungalily run, uh, write his own name and that's it. You know, he couldn't really write or read. Uh, his mother really couldn't write, but she she could read a little, mainly the Bible to him. And then after she died, his, his stepmother uh, was a little bit more literate. She could read and she could write a little, but she had a library. She had books. Um, by library, I mean like six books, you know.
0: You know? <laughs> Not like your collection. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have that much on my desk, you know. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, but he, so he started reading books. So he's out there and he's working as a farmer and he's, he's, a, he's, a, he grows very quickly. He's bigger than, and stronger than, than most of people his age. Um, and when they run, move from Kentucky to Indiana when he's seven years old, he says he was, you know, given an ax and uh, for the next 20 years, he almost never put down this most useful instrument. He basically was out there, he was tilling fields and and farming and, and cutting down trees and everything else. But he was also different from a lot of people in that, that was all that farming work, that was fine for people like his father and most of his peers. But for him, he was just intellectually stimulated from the beginning. He wanted to learn things. And as he grew older and learned more, he realized he said, i don't want to do all of this farming stuff it's hard work and you know there's no future in it i like i want to learn and i want to learn things and go on and do bigger and better things whatever that might be so he did he did pick up books and and read so i i, I talk about it in the book you know i have a whole chapter on his education and you know when he uh, when he writes uh, uh, Handwrites an autobiography and gives it off to a journalist to write expanded biographies for when he's running for president. And he says that you know he you know there's nothing about his his life growing up that there is to write about. That he had very little education. That over the over his entire life growing up, he had no more than a one year of formal education. And that was not all at once. It was a few weeks here, a couple of months there, spread over basically 14, 15 years. Um, so he didn't learn much other than reading, writing, and ciphering to the rule of three. So I looked at that and I look at some of the, <clears throat> some of the things later, like he writes uh, 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 what's called a fragment, writes out this piece about my uh, Niagara Falls after visiting. And I read that and I say, there's a lot of science that he knows in there. Where did he get that? He didn't get that from less than a year of reading, writing and, and ciphering to the rule of three.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's part of the reason why I started digging into it. And I did find that um, like even on the farm, he had to learn some you know, forest ecology because he had to go out there and cut down trees. He, he says that you know when he moved to Indiana, it was a very dense forest with a lot of wild animals. And they had to cut the forest down to clear enough land to plant crops. So unlike today where it's second growth forest or third growth forest, where there's not that many species of trees, back then there were hundreds of different kinds of trees. So every, and every kind of tree has a different ecology. Some of them are good for building the log cabin. Some of them are good for, uh, you know, cooking, burning in the fire. Uh, some of them are small, so you could cut them with an ax. Some of them are huge and cutting them with an ax is pretty difficult. So we had to learn uh, how they worked, you know, how the, how the nutrients get from the roots up to the top. And, and that led to girdling where you could cut off the the bark all the way around so that the the nutrients can't get up into the tree and eventually the tree dies. So he learned a lot about ecology that way. Uh, He learned a lot about hydrology, how water flows um, by seeing it rain, for example, on the fields or, or raining in the hills around the fields and nothing really on the fields and then the rain rushing down in a flood and washing away all the topsoil. Uh, and he learned, so he learned about hydrology and how just a bad, one bad storm can just wipe away your whole livelihood.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so he did, he did learn things like that. Uh, he also, because of the, uh, the lack of schooling, he did a lot of self-study. And this was part of his philosophy that he developed in life of of bettering his condition, of of learning on his own what he couldn't learn through school and he couldn't learn from his parents. And he did that through reading. And he did that through practicing over and over and over. So uh, one of the things as far as uh, the science and, and, and mathematics especially that he learned Uh, You know, the idea of the ciphering to the rule of three, you know, well, that doesn't sound like much. He knows how to add, subtract and do multiplication and maybe division and ciphering to the rule of three, rule of three is a, what we would call a ratio today, um, a proportion. So, you know, three numbers and, and you have to figure out how to get to the fourth number. Things like, you know, if it costs $2 for a bushel of corn, how much does it cost for half a bushel of corn, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but he also learned by studying himself, he learned a lot more math. He had to learn much more complicated division, uh, some stuff that would make people cry today, you know, when they go through <laughs> all these divisions. And, and you can see that, uh, Herndon, William Herndon, his last law partner, you know, after he, after the assassination, he went out and talked to all the people that had known him, uh, in Indiana and in uh, New Salem before Herndon had met him and uh, his stepmother gave Herndon a uh, uh, about a dozen sheets from what used to be a hundred sheet sum book or copy book that's where he would practice his math and just looking at the 12 you know that he learned a lot more math than he let on Mm -hmm. Um, you know it wasn't just uh, The rule of three, it was double rule of three and reverse rule of three. And and it was long division and very complicated things like discounts and interest rates and a lot of things that people today wouldn't have even heard of. Um, He learned all of that stuff. Plus, later in his life, uh, well, a little bit after um, New Salem or when he was in New Salem, he had he became a surveyor. Uh, So to plot out the land for roads and, and towns, things like that. Well, to be a surveyor, you have to learn trigonometry and geometry. And he got books on surveying, and he went through them. And he, you know, I went through these same books that he used. There's some pretty interesting math in there. You know, trigonometry is looking at the angles. You know, like sines and cosines and tangents of (laughs) angles, and you know things that people hate to do today. (laughs) He was learning those. He was learning those on his own. (laughs) Right. So. Um, and And even later when he went to uh, when he became a, a congressman as one term in the US Congress, he got there and he realized most of these congressmen, especially from the East, um, were much better educated and they knew things more. So he, he learned that one of the things that they learned that they studied was Euclid geometry. Euclid was this ancient mathematician that had come up with this mechanism for this method for geometry, and which is, you know, shapes, study of shapes. And it's also a study in logic. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had read it later in his life to help his logical skills. And Lincoln did it to improve his logical thinking. Mm So he, he was learning all of this math. He was learning all of the science on the way. Um, he also, when he was, uh, when he was a, uh, a lawyer um, and partnering with uh, William Herndon, Herndon was a kind of a compulsive book collector. Uh, not that I can understand anything like that. You know, <laughs> but he, he, he collected a lot of books. He had a pretty large library. Uh, Lincoln really didn't have much of a library buddy, but he used Herndon stuff. Uh, and Lincoln and Herndon was into science. So he would buy things. And as soon as Darwin's book was available, you know, he got Origin of Species, um, which was kind of late for Lincoln to look at it. But uh, he got all the science books and he got this annual of science, which came out every year and just kind of summarized all the science that had come out that year. Mm mm-hmm. And Lincoln got and looked at this and said, Oh man, this is great, you know. And he went through it and he said, This comes out every year, and it's been coming out for like the last 20 years. You have to go out and get all the back issues, <laughs> get a subscription so we get the next one, you know. He really did get into that science, uh, so he was studying all of this stuff on his own. Uh, and I guess I'll add one more thing. He, when he was out on the circuit as a lawyer. He and the other lawyers and a judge would just ride around on the horseback and on in and, and carriages and then later in on uh, railroads. And they would go around this huge area, the center of, of Illinois, to uh, go to each of the county seats in each county in the Eighth Judicial Circuit, and they would take whatever trials were and waiting there for them to, to take on. And of course, here I spend a lot of time on horseback, going through people's farms and along along the way. And whenever he saw something new and mechanical in a field, he would say, "Wait, wait, wait, wait! I have to go look at that." <laughs> <clears throat> and he'd get the farmer to explain it to him. So there was a there, there was a time period when there was a lot of new inventions coming out, um, new things to make farming easier. Uh, there were things for, for planting. There was things for uh, the reapers that would help you collect the um, meat and corn. Uh, and he was very much interested in all of that. So he was building his technological expertise as well um, doing that. And all of this was pretty much on his own. You know, he was studying on his own and learning all this stuff, whereas most people were not bothering to do that. But he saw the importance of it early on Mm-hmm. Uh, both from his own personal learning and growth, and how this could help um, help society uh, by implementing these ways to do things easier, because you know he he had grown up on the farm, he hated it. <clears throat> he saw that, but but he knew farming was still, most people were still farmers in the country, mm-hmm. north and south. And he understood that farming was going to be critical for the rest of forever and even today even though farms are much different it's still critical obviously providing the food right and he knew that there were better ways to do it so he that was kind of in his thinking all along how does this thing get better gets better from using technology to make it easier to get better yields but also science so that you don't deplete the soil and and uh, maybe crop rotation, things like that in order to uh, also improve, improve the yields. So all of those things kind of fit into his thinking when he then became a politician and also in his legal career um, and then and then the Civil War itself.
0: So it sounds like this hard scrabble background, as much as he hated it, it's. It does help him because he gets that hands-on science experience, and he's also taking in as much knowledge as he can, uh, which is a really good lesson we could all take from Lincoln. Uh, So you kind of touched on it. As he's a lawyer, he's on the circuit. He's seeing inventions firsthand, uh, and he's learning about them. So when he becomes a lawyer and he becomes uh, a representative in Congress and in the Illinois legislature, how does he advocate for science, and, and how does it he continued to grow his knowledge. Obviously you mentioned Euclid uh, and studying that. Is there anything else that he does to continue to expand his knowledge as he's a young professional?
1: Yeah, he, uh, well, he's, he's a lifelong learner. So he's constantly learning all the way through the civil war, you know, borrowing books from the library of Congress um, on, on science and on uh, military strategy. So he's constantly learning. And, and that's certainly a lesson that we could learn from him. But when he became a, uh, Uh, a politician. Uh, He was in the, the Illinois state legislature for four terms, so a total of eight years. And it was a period of time when there was a big push towards something called internal improvements. And internal improvements are what today we would call it infrastructure projects. But back then, they were focused on on four different things that were trying to improve, improve tech using technology to improve uh, transportation and and the economy. So the four things that they were trying to to uh, improve were roads. Uh, up until then, you know, Lincoln, whenever they moved from one farm to another and when they moved from uh, Kentucky to Indiana and Indiana to Illinois, they spent a lot of time stuck in the mud mm-hmm. The roads basically were wherever you could get a horse or a wagon through the forest you would people would start following it and eventually it'd be tamped down and and there wasn't really a road there it's just worn down from from usage And when it rained, it would turn the mud which would go all the way up to like the axles of, of, uh, of these carriages that they were in wagons. So you really couldn't move and you would literally get stuck and you couldn't, couldn't go anywhere. And then during the winter it would all freeze and you would just have these ruts and horse prints through and it would be very difficult to, to get through there too. So he, one of the things he pushed for was getting roads built. Now they weren't like I ninety five or anything like that. They were, <laughs> they were simple, uh, you know, like uh, getting some drainage so they didn't turn the mud. Some some packed rock and packed dirt, uh, maybe leveling them so that they're easier to go on, and you know, eventually it was years later when they finally started getting things like macadam and you know, certain pavement. But it, that was the beginning of it. Another was uh, at the time. The rivers were really the main form of transportation and commerce. Big rivers like the Ohio and the Mississippi, obviously, were used to get uh, farm goods down to um, down, especially to New Orleans, where there was a huge uh, trading area and a big city. And Lincoln had taken himself two uh, flatboat trips, one from Indiana and one from Illinois down through the big rivers and to to New Orleans. And one of those trips, the second one, he gets stuck on the mill dam outside of New Salem. And that getting his flatboat stuck was part of the reason why he ended up with a patent later on. But it was also part of the reason why he pushed for getting the rivers dredged and cleared out to make them more navigable. And, and of course, by this time he's living in New Salem. The Sangamon River, that where he got stuck, is uh, pretty important to the town. Uh, and in fact, later on, after it kind of meanders away from the town, the, the town folds and it just disappears. But he wanted, okay, let me let's get these smaller rivers cleared away from the, you get the brush cleared away from the edges, and let's see if we can dig them out a little bit, and make so steamboats can go up steam boats were expanding at that time and he saw that that huge technological advance as being wow this could really help both move people around but move goods around
0: Mm -hmm. and these
1: farmers can sell their goods for much further distance so he was really pushing for, for for that uh the third aspect was canals so canals And a lot of places could, you know, cut through some of these meanders. A lot of these smaller rivers kind of curved around, and they took a long time to get a short distance. But if you put in canals, it could like connect connect the dots, you know, so that you could make it make it easier. And he saw himself as actually as the Dewitt Clinton of Illinois. And uh, for people who don't know who Dewitt Clinton is, which is most people, he was the governor of New York when the Erie Canal was completed. And prior to that, he had actually been instrumental in getting the Erie Canal approved and start getting it built. So the Erie Canal, which goes from just above Albany on the Hudson River, uh, straight across upper New York state to the Lake Erie, Mm -hmm. really opened up uh, commerce for New England and New York, and Pennsylvania, even um, in, to get into the uh, get into the Great Lakes, and once you're in the Great Lakes, you could take steamships around the Great Lakes. And Lincoln saw, especially the Illinois and Michigan Canal, which runs from ran from uh, Chicago, uh, kind of southwest down until it meets the Illinois River, and the Illinois River eventually reaches reaches the Mississippi River he said, well, that will just connect everything. You know, we can, every, all these people in New England and New York, they could get through the Erie Canal into the Great Lakes, into the Illinois-Michigan Canal and down the river. It would be great for the economy of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll—I'll—I'll. I'll, I'll, before I go to the fourth one, I'll, I'll stop and add, if you picture Illinois at that time, I mean, picture it now, it's kind of in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. But at that time, there wasn't a whole lot west of Illinois that had been states yet. There were a couple of states, but most of it was still territory. And in fact, when he was doing this, the furthest west part hadn't even become part of the United States yet, it was still part of Mexico. So Illinois really was the crossroads between the, the established states and places where everybody wanted to go to build. And he saw that and he said, hey, you know, we're right in the middle here. We can really maximize this economically right so it's great for transportation moving people around it's great for our economy so and that's that was part of the driver so the fourth part of this internal improvements were railroads and the railroads were they were they were growing they had already existed in the east for a little bit just like steamboats but they were slowly working their way uh, westward and uh, he saw them as uh, advantageous both because they were faster and they can go on land and then go to places that the rivers you couldn't get to on rivers but also you could the rivers mostly were useful going north to south the ohio and the mississippi and all the big rivers you know they you take it and you go south and you get to new orleans and then you sell all your stuff railroads could just go straight from the east where everybody was they'd go west and And that would be helpful for more, again, for transport and the economy. And it would be good for the United States to do that in addition to being good for Illinois. So he worked very hard to to push those improvements, that infrastructure uh, improvements. Um, So that was was probably the biggest thing he did when he was uh, in Illinois state legislature. And then even when he went to Congress he continued to push internal improvements both in Illinois and, and elsewhere. Um, and even as president, he, he pushed that. Um, and uh, there were several acts that were passed and he signed that, that helped uh, westward expansion in particular. Um, but we can talk about that again later. Uh, so that was, that was a lot of what he did when he was uh, as a politician. Um, but he was also a lawyer His politician was like kind of a part-time thing. Uh, you know, he only worked so many months as, as a state legislator and he still had to have a, you know, his day job as, as a lawyer. And even when he was in Congress, uh, you know, people today look at Congress and say, well, you know, these people, they don't work very much. You know, they take all this time off and like this month in August that we're, that we're talking this is, a, this is a recess month most of the congressmen are back home um, getting a much needed vacation, but also you know, meeting up with constituents and doing some campaigning because we have an election coming up for especially for people in the House of Representatives. Right. So at Lincoln's time, they had uh, the two year term for the House, just like they do now. And they had two sessions, so one in each year. And the sessions were only about three months. So in between those sessions, he would go back to Illinois and he'd be a lawyer. And by, this, by that time, he was uh, a lawyer that was getting pretty well known for being able to handle complicated uh, patent cases and uh, technological cases. Yeah, before that, early on, he was doing a lot of things like collecting debts and divorces, and you know the, the bread and butter stuff that most lawyers, especially out on the on the frontier, which Illinois still was. Um, so most of his trials, when you look at all of the trials that he was involved in, his cases, uh, most of them were debt cases. They were they were nothing really exciting. Um, but the later cases, he did much more in a way of patent cases, technology cases, uh, railroad cases, all uh, more and more that were technologically uh, related or science related, some medical uh, malpractice cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, he became known for somebody who could handle those sorts of things and understand them. Um, and there are, there are a couple of cases that really kind of epitomize that um, if you have time I can talk about those
0: yeah I'd love to hear about them
1: okay so there's there's a couple of cases that become um, become very important one is a case he didn't actually try <laughs> but he prepared for it <laughs> um, so you probably heard about this that this is a called them, popularly called the Manny McCormick Reaper Trial. And this is a, a reapers are a farm uh, machinery that you would usually pull behind a horse that would uh, help collect, uh, reap the the, um, the, the wheat and the, and the corn so that it would be easier than trying to cut it and pull it by hand, you know, call it with, cut it with a hand scythe. This would mechanize that. And it made it much easier, and you could plant more acreage. So McCormick is is very famous. His father had invented a reaper, and then and then his son had had uh, improved on it, and he had a patent on it. He had several patents on it, and everybody wanted to copy it. So a guy by the name of Manny made something that was similar, and he got sued by by McCormick. So the trial was going to be happen, and McCormick was in Illinois, as was Manny. So the trial was going to be in in uh, Chicago. So the trial lawyers, who were actually in Ohio, um, hired Lincoln. They, oh, this guy's a patent lawyer. He knows this stuff. He knows the people in 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 Illinois. Let's get him on. And Lincoln was. I love this, this is my kind of case. So he goes up and he and he, and he looks at Manny's equipment and he re- really pulls it apart and really understands it. He looks at McCormick's equipment. He brings in a couple of guys that know about the two different kinds and interviews them. He, he prepares this brief and all during this time, um, the lawyers that hired him neglected to tell him that the case had been moved to Cincinnati. <laughs> And since it was in Cincinnati, they didn't really need an Illinois lawyer anymore. They had this guy by the name of Edwin Stanton as a lawyer. <laughs> and you might recognize Edwin Stanton's name who became Secretary of War, Civil War. So Stanton didn't really like Lincoln. And he was kind of a headstrong kind of guy, as we all know, from the Civil War. So he... He doesn't want to have anything to do with Lincoln, but Lincoln didn't know this yet. So he shows up in Cincinnati (laughs) and he gets, he gets dissed by, by the lawyers and by, by Stanton. And he's not allowed to participate in the trial. So, you know, he's, he's pretty angry at this, but he does stay there and he watches the trial from, from the back (laughs) and he picks up some trial tips, you know, how these Eastern lawyers, you know, do trials. So he does learn some stuff, but he he kind of vows that maybe I'm not going to ever come back to Cincinnati. I didn't get treated <laughs> very well. But in the end, the trial, it, it gets it. It finishes. Uh, it goes on and gets appealed and eventually ends, in, ends up in the Supreme Court. And Supreme Court um, rules for Manny, who was the side that Lincoln was working on, was the Manny side. And, he, and it, at the end of the appeals, it ends up in Manny's favor, largely on the basis for this, these, uh, these, this technical brief that Lincoln had written, but never got a chance to present. So it shows it's you know he didn't even though he didn't really try the case. It shows how how he understood mechanical and technological aspects of. of of, of these issues, which became very important in other cases.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so there's one other. there's a lot of different cases I talk about many, many cases in both uh, technical patent cases, you did a lot of patent cases and uh, railroad cases. But there's another one that's pretty interesting that, that really made a difference to the, the whole country. And that's uh, uh, usually called the Effie-Afton trial. Effie Afton was the name of a steamboat. And up to this time, steamboats, like I said, had most of the commerce uh, going up and down the Mississippi River. And St. Louis was the hub. And uh, this steamboat that came out of St. Louis and was going, goes north as far as you can go, which is pretty far north on the Mississippi. Um, they get to just above an on, on area on, on in Illinois, um, called uh, Rock Rock Island, and Rock Island is, is like an island in the middle of the Mississippi. And the Mississippi is is much more narrow at this point than it is down down when you think of how wide it is down in New Orleans. It's much more narrow, and you could cross it with a, with bridges a, a, a short bridge from Illinois to the island, and then a slightly longer bridge from the island to Iowa. It's now Iowa. So the railroads built a bridge to get across so they could run a railroad across the, the, the Mississippi River, the very first railroad bridge in the country across the Mississippi River. And there were other railroad bridges across other rivers, but the first one across the Mississippi River. And that the the steamboat companies didn't like this idea because it might, <laughs> if the if the railroads got established and kept going west, they would they might steal business. Right. So this this Effie Afton steamboat, it stops and picks on fuel, which was uh, wood for the fire boilers at the time. And then it proceeds a short distance upstream to go under this bridge, which had only been there for a couple of weeks. It promptly runs into the bridge, catches fire, burns the the steamboat down to the the waterline (laughs) Uh, Luckily, nobody died, even though there was a lot of people on board, but it lost a lot of money. There was a lot of product on there. And it burned up part of the bridge and made the bridge unusable for a while at least. And then the steamboat company sued the railroad company. And by this time, Lincoln was working for the railroads. And so the railroad called in Lincoln. And Lincoln spent a lot of time uh, studying the area uh, studying the reach. He got out there on the water. He he, he hired an engineer to, to work, help work him work through this. And then in the trial, he explained to the jury in a very technologically complicated uh, a closing argument, which luckily we have almost a verbatim transcript of, which was not common. And he explained how... A steamboat going through this area could not possibly have hit one side of the bridge. And then while it's moving at five or six knots an hour forward, suddenly move and go all the way to the, the other side and hit the other side of the bridge without moving forward at all. And he explained, like, I think this it was either negligence or intentional. Mm mm-hmm. And so he explains it very technically, and then he summarizes it in popular language that people can understand, which was something he was known for how to convince a jury of very technical aspects of things. And uh, the jury ended up as a hung jury. But he had taken, he had managed to convince eight of these 12 people that it was the steamboat's fault that did this. And the other four were not so sure. So, but it ended in the hung jury and it never, it, it, it went, It got retried and that didn't end up working anywhere. It, it didn't matter. In the end, it basically got dropped and Lincoln was able to convince enough people so that um, it delayed everything. And meanwhile, the railroad just rebuilt the, the bridge and was running trains over (laughs) and it was like this was the first time that trains could now get across to the western side of the mississippi river Mm -hmm. and this really really started the switch from a focus on steamships going up and down these rivers to the south to trains going just total straight west and eventually the the transcontinental railroad would go all the way west
0: so Lincoln was at the center
1: of this. Lincoln of, was at the center of this, yeah. Um, and then because he, you know, I said he worked for the railroads. He did. He was on retainer by the Illinois Central Railroad for a long time, um, and he he had actually did have cases against them uh, later. But he he worked for them for a long time. He did a lot of small cases. He set a lot of precedents, both with for the Illinois Central and for other railroads, both that protected the railroad. And set up some precedents for corporate, you know, interest, you know, laws that help the corporations. But he also did the opposite. He 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 set some precedents in his trials to protect workers that had been injured, you know, that were forced the, the the corporations to start providing safe working conditions for their workers. So he he set precedents going both directions mm-hmm. on on that, and of course. All, that, all of this that he's learning, all this technological stuff, um, all of the way the river works, all the way the, the, the railroads, all of this is something that helped him think through strategy in the Civil War.
0: Yeah. And so it, it sounds like he develops this early on, this interest in science. He realizes the importance of it, and then he really starts to implement it as he becomes a lawyer as he becomes a politician. Uh, and then obviously, he goes to the White House, right? That's not the end of his mm-hmm. career there. Uh, so let's talk a bit about his expansion of technology in the White House um, mm-hmm. during the Civil War, especially. Um, it's a great time of technological advancement. So how does he progress it? And, and what's his role uh, during his time as president?
1: Yeah, I, I talk a lot about what, what happened during the Civil War and the Uh, You know, people have referred to the Civil War as the first modern war because of the technological advances, of course. People also referred to the Revolutionary War as the first modern war because of the technological advances. <laughs> you know, you get the minute men are, you know, not standing up there in a row with red jackets, you know, just like making yourself sitting ducks to get shot, you know? So there right. was technological advance because of the way that they, they were able to do that. So every war is the first modern war up to that point. Um, but the Civil War really hit kind of a sweet spot, I think, in moving f- strategy wise from a very simple weapons to more complicated weapons. Mm-hmm. And some of those got used during the war. some of them were developed but didn't really get used until later. Um, but uh, so there was that. And then the the fact that telegraph and trains and other uh, advancements, were now available for use and more became very important. Mm-hmm. So for as far as Lincoln goes, and uh, for Leslie, just look at the technology uh, to begin with. So he was very interested in every aspect of technology. You know, he was somebody that got, had a reputation and got quickly an expanded reputation as being a guy who would listen to inventors. So people would Back then, you did, you could get into the White House, you just walk up to the front door and say, I'm here to see the president. And if there were other people there, and usually there was a line and people waiting and waiting, waiting down the, the stairways to get up to the second floor to talk to the president. And he would let him in one at a time and he would just talk to him. And some of these guys are carrying these big. Um, rifles. And you know, so I've got a new rifle, you know, I want to show you. <laughs> of course, you wouldn't get past the, the fence. Now you'd be tackled by the Secret Service, but right. they didn't have that then. yet. So he was very interested in seeing what kinds of new inventions, you know, we didn't have a military industrial complex like we have now. We didn't have defense contractors. Basically relied on individual inventors to come up with new ideas. So there were people that brought in Uh, things that were improvements on rifling, uh, guns. Uh, And he was very much into this idea of moving towards uh, more advanced uh, individual guns, rifles. So during, at the beginning of the war, most people were using um, smoothbore muskets. So one shot, a ball that goes, you know, wherever it goes and not that accurate for very far. And then as soon as you shoot it, you had to stand up and go through this whole procedure to put in the, the, the powder, put in the bullet, put in, you know, tampon everything down, get it all set. You know, if, if you're really, really, really good, you could get three shots off in a minute. <clears throat> Plus you have to stand up to do this, to, to, to re to get the ball in there, it's hard to do when you're laying on your stomach. So, you know, you make yourself easy, an easy victim. Uh Um, Then they went and he pushed the idea and he had people come in and he tested some of these things to get rifled muskets. And the rifle is just, uh, you know, just the, the groove inside that spirals that now you have a conical shell and you could spin it and it's much more accurate for a much further distance. So he tested some of those himself. Um, the most famous is probably the um, the uh, <laughs> totally forgot the name of it Spencer, sorry the Spencer breech loading uh, rifle. So here is now you can load the bullets uh, from the breech, and you instead of having to put it into the barrel, um, it's rifled. It's a little shorter. Um, and you have a cartridge where you can stick into the stock that has seven bullets in it. And you could fire those seven bullets and then reload it with another cartridge. And instead of maybe three shots, you can get dozens, you know, if you're really good. Well, there's there's an advantage to that. And Lincoln saw that advantage. <clears throat> he tested it. He was a pretty good shot. But, you know, he tested it. And then he had to convince the ordinance officer Ripley to put these into service. And Ripley was like, I don't want those things. (laughs) You know, we, you know, and he, and Ripley has a point, you know, if you could shoot off seven bullets in in a short period of time and you're scared and you're green, most of these, these new recruits, they had been farmers a week before they, they weren't really trained soldiers when they started, especially early in the war. You know they're going to get scared. They're either going to drop it and leave this new weapon for the other side, or they're just going to like shoot everything and not hit anything. Right. <laughs> so, so there was this battle between Lincoln and the and the ordnance people who just wanted to give me something, give me a lot of something simple. And Lincoln was like, "I want to get you stuff that would do the job better." So he did that. He also got involved in bigger weapons. Like uh, there's a something he called a coffee mill gun that. Uh, because it had like a hopper on the top where you might put in you put in the coffee grounds and then grind it and then well this basically you throw in the bullets and then you would grind it <laughs> with a with a crank and it would shoot them and turn out one one uh, uh one barrel and then he so he he tested that and he was in on it and he he, he also looked at an improvement to that by another another guy, and eventually the Gatling gun, which had a rotating barrel with multiple but uh, barrels that you crank it and it fires a lot. So he did a lot of things like that, um, but he also did things like uh, you think of the, the the monitor, the ironclad monitor. That almost didn't happen. Um, the when. Soon after the war started, when Virginia had left the, the Union, the Union had, the United States had a, the Gosport uh, Navy Yard in and, and Norfolk. And they were like, oh, well, Virginia's leaving. We can't let them have all of this, this equipment. So they just tried to, to scuttle everything and burn it down. So they burned down. One of the ships they burned down was the Merrimack. It's a big wooden sailing ship only like as wood burns it sinks and basically the hull was okay under the water. So, so the Confederates got this ship and they raised the, the hull and they put ironclad sheets on it to make an ironclad, the, the CSS Virginia, but even though everybody still called it the Merrimack, it was the CSS Virginia. And they they went down the Hampton Roads in, in the following year and they were just totally destroying these wooden boats, wooden sailing ships. In the meantime, you couldn't keep any secrets back then. So the union knew that they were building the the Virginia. So they said, we need one. They actually put an advertisement in the newspaper, said, we need designs for ironclads. Anybody have one? And um, one of the people that came forward was uh, a guy by the name of John Erickson. who was a Swedish uh, inventor that um, had already designed, pretty much designed what was the monitor, which was, you know, I'm sure everybody has seen it, It looked like a, a cheese box on a raft. It was called It's basically just a flat raft looking thing with a round turret on the top. Uh, so it was a little different than the, than the Confederate version. But he had that and he had a model on his shelf. He had tried to sell the idea to Napoleon Third. And, and Napoleon was like, yeah, we already have some, we don't need it. It was sitting there and ready, pretty much the design, ready to be built. But he had had such a falling out with the Navy a decade or so before, because of another, an incident that almost killed the vice president of the United States and did kill the Secretary of State that they blamed on Erickson, Navy blamed on Erickson. He said, I don't wanna have anything to do with you people. And it was Lincoln. It was a meeting with Lincoln where Lincoln um, looked at this, looked at the model, talked to Erickson and, and the Navy, and basically said, you know, I think there's something in this. You know, it's like you got to get over your, your feud and, and make this happen. And he made sure that there was money and materials to make the the, the, the monitor, which gets down to Hampton Roads just in time to fight it out with the, the, the CSS Virginia and you know, come to a stalemate. And neither one of them actually fought again after that. Uh, they eventually both won, the, the Confederates scuttled theirs and, and the Monitor ended up, you know they were moving it to another place and it, and it sunk. Um, I will say one thing, uh, Lincoln actually had something to do with the CSS Virginia, the Merrimack ironclad, um, getting scuttled. He went down with Chase and some of the other people from the cabinet down the Hampton Roads. Uh, this was a, a months later, and he toured the the monitor, which had been, you know, refurbished after getting some damaged, and he said, you know. We want to take back the Norfolk Navy yard, the Gosport, what had been the Gosport Navy yard, Norfolk. Let me, we need to go after you guys. What are you doing? Let's go for it. And he pushed the people to go and, and take it over, which they were able to do because the Confederates just said, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And they left. So they took it over. But part of this, he went on shore to 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 look on, confet, on the Confederately held side to say, how do we... You know where do we land? You know where we he's pushing these people. Let's find a place to land, and then he said, "I want you to to start firing at you know, at some of these targets, these Confederate targets, and just start firing at them from from the the Monitor and from other wooden ships that were in the area. Just start firing on it. The Confederates on the on the Virginia Merrimack, they were sitting there off craney Island, thinking." What's all this firing going on here? You know I hear all this military, this artillery artillery. I, I, we better get we better get it going. So he's like, let's try to go up river. I said well we can't because we're we sink we're too low. So they start offloading all the stuff to make them lighter. And then they can't get to the point where they're light enough to get up river, but they are, they do get to the point where they're too light to go the other direction and go out <laughs> to sea. So now they're like, well, we're stuck. And they just, everybody gets off and they, they set fire to it, to destroy it. All because Lincoln was like, they're pushing his own generals to say, do something. You know? <laughs> um, so Lincoln also did in the technology side, he used he used the, he really pushed to use the, the railroads. Um, he w- became a very hands-on, uh, uh, his own uh, general in chief basically. Uh, by using a telegraph, which now for the first time can be used in warfare or it had never been used in warfare like this before. And he's sending messages back and forth. So he's playing much more hands-on. So he did a lot uh, to push the technological side. Um, and there's much, much more that I talk about, but the, you know, he did a lot to push the technological side. And then uh, I guess I'll say really quickly on the science side, there were issues that were... Created by, by the war. Like um, you have these iron, new ironclad ships clad with iron, and the compasses that all ships have to figure out where they're going, you know, they're like spinning around because the iron is all over every place. And they go, well, how do we deal with that? So he, he pushes uh, the new National Academy of Sciences to work on that. He dealt with issues related to coal. I dealt with issues related to uh, uh, saltpeter, the niter that's used in in gunpowder. So he worked with his science people uh, to do all of that. Um, So I'll stop there.
0: So Lincoln obviously is this great intellectual mind. He's a great politician but he's also forward thinking. He's all for technology. Um, And it sounds like you mentioned the use of railroads. He really wants to use the North's industrial capacity to put down this rebellion.
1: Yes, uh, he knew and he realized early on, and it was pretty much common knowledge early on that the North had a lot more railroads, had a lot more telegraph lines, had a lot more manufacturing capacity, had a lot more ironworks capacity. And that those could be used to the North's advantage. Uh, The South had disdained all of those things because they thought, for one thing, they thought that, well, if you have more railroads, that, that gives more opportunity for enslaved people to escape. We don't want that. You know, we don't want communication because, with a telegraph, because the more people can talk to each other, the more they realize that you know, maybe there's a better way than the way we're doing things. Right. You know, it's, 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 it's typical. You see that now, uh, where people are trying to control communication, trying to not you make sure that people aren't educated, you know, make sure that you restrict how much, uh, power they have. In the North was the exact opposite. Lincoln was, was very much a proponent of education, of technological and scientific advantages of, uh, using all of this to help not just the rich people uh, like somebody like Thomas Jefferson. He did some inventing and did some things uh, when he was around, but it was mainly to make his life easier and to increase his wealth. Lincoln saw this as a mechanism to uh, allow individuals better opportunities that the government could be used to lift the weights off of soldiers of the, uh, the shoulders of the citizens so that they then had this equal opportunity to mm-hmm. to, to advance so that even the poorest uh, farmer or worker could advance and have their own business someday and you know become rich them their own way that took education that took being open to advancement
0: well, I don't want to give away too much of your book because so I want our listeners to pick it up. Uh, obviously, this book comes out next month, correct? When can listeners uh, pick it up or maybe it's available for pre-order now?
1: Yeah, it's order for it. You can pre-order it now at all the usual places. Um, so all the online places like Amazon and Barnes & Noble and your independent independent stores. Um, I'm going to be on uh, the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in on September 1st, the day it The book comes out. Uh, You can get it from pre-order from them. And it's supposed to be also in Walmart and Target and, and everywhere else. Uh, So you can pre-order it now and it'll it it comes out on September 1st.
0: Very cool. Is there a way that listeners can uh, reach out to you if they have questions or social media, perhaps they could follow you on?
1: Yeah, I can. uh, I'll, I can, send you my information. You can attach it, I guess. Um, But basically, if you go to uh, my website at davidjkent-writer.com, that's my website. And you can find my email address there as well, um, which is similar. And that, that way you can reach out to me. I also have a Facebook page so you can look for David J. Kent on uh, on Facebook and, and find my author uh, Facebook page. And I have Instagram and all of the, all those different things. So David J. Kent, write on on Instagram
0: and, and uh, Twitter, I'll make sure to put that in the notes for everybody. Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with as we kind of wrap up our discussion here?
1: Now I'll just say that, uh, and I, I just sort of said this a uh, few minutes ago, but you know, Lincoln's vision was uh, not just what was mainly that uh, we should all spend our whole lives learning as much as we possibly can. That education was the most important thing that we could we could do. That we should always be looking for opportunities, and that we all do better when we all do better. Mm-hmm. You know that. Uh, you know, it's really important to keep moving forward and to, uh, and to always be looking for opportunities. And that the government has a role in providing, uh, either providing opportunities or uh, removing burdens so that those opportunities are more easily attainable. Uh, so I think that's his main, Lincoln's main thinking um, that drove both his personal growth and the growth of the country.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I I, mean, as as an educator myself, lifelong learning is what we try to instill in people. Uh, It's so valuable. And for the listeners, I encourage you to pick up this book um, if you enjoyed the discussion and you can learn more about Lincoln and his commitment to technology and science. And I'll make sure to put a link in there for anyone who wants to pick up this book so they can uh, support you. Well, Thank you very much. This has been a great conversation and a fascinating topic to discuss.
1: Great. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us for this discussion with David J. Kent. I hope you learned something about Lincoln and his scientific advancements. I also hope you'll join us next week as we sit down with Darren Rawlings to discuss the war from the UK perspective. Please leave a review as always, share, and head to thecivilwarcenter.com for more, and consider picking up Lincoln, the Fire of Genius. See you next week.